Hello! The winner is... Oh, well, sorry I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in Cinemaland. I, Oscar the Academy Award. Hello! And welcome back to The Snub Club, a podcast where we talk about the movie that has the most Oscar noms and no wins. I'm your host, Danny Vincent. With me, as always, are two other folks who will now introduce themselves, themselves, something. Themselves. I don't um, know grammar. And I'm Sarah Knopf. <laughs> who else is here? It's me, Caleb Bunn. Mamma mia. Uh, <laughs> so before we talk about this week's uh, movie... The Oscar noms came out. Yeah. For which okay. Oscars? I believe this is the 94th Academy Awards. Yes. Uh, so instead of talking about like what we want to win or like what movies we've seen, because that's a it's a boring cliche. Uh, that's not what this podcast is about. We're going to talk about the movie that we currently think will win the, the uh, Snub Club Award. Now, I want to clarify one thing that's very important is that the Oscars fan favorite award will not qualify. <laughs> The Oscars fan favorite will not qualify. I I don't think any of these movies even have a chance of winning Oscars fan favorite. With the exception that I see, I've read from like Deadline that apparently Tick Tick Boom is doing well in it because of both the Andrew Garfield stance and the Lin Manuel Miranda stance. But you'd think they'd go after and count to the Lin Manuel Miranda stance, but whatever. Two powerful uh, forces combined. Here's why we should count it. Just in case. (laughs) Being the Ricardos wins, we can start a campaign, or loses everything else, we can start a campaign to make it so we don't have to watch a Sorkin movie two years in a row. I, I just gotta say that if it being the Ricardos does qualify, this is gonna be one of those annoying miniseries years, because there's a lot of movies nominated for three. Uh, do you guys mind if I read the nominations out of the nom count? Sure. Alright, so The Power of the Dog led with 12 noms. Dune has 10. Belfast and West Side Story have 7. King Richard has six. Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, and Nightmare Alley all have four each. And then Bing the Ricardos, Coda, Encanto, Flea, Licorice Pizza, The Lost Daughter, No Time to Die, and The Tragedy of Macbeth all have three. So I didn't, I'm not bothering the two because I don't think it will get that far down. <laughs> so uh, who want, do you want me to go first on what we think will be the Snub Club movie? Or someone else can go first if they'd like. I'll go first. Okay. Um, my pick is West Side Story. Why? <laughs> like, 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 you can't just leave it at that. Like, I, well, <laughs> spoiler alert, but Steven Spielberg has a history of not winning anything. Um, I just feel like with the, with the snub of Rachel Zegler, with um, you know, power of the dog so overwhelming, you know, overwhelming in terms of nominations. I, I just don't see the real front runner Debose getting it. Um, I think it'll go to like Judy Dench or whatever. Um, I just don't think that. It, I just I feel like it's not West Side Story year. I think. Can I ask you if right now that for next year do you predict that it'll be Flowers of the Blood Moon because Scorsese also has a long history. Spoiler he will also pop up a ton on this podcast. <laughs> I couldn't even begin to tell you. 
Okay. Uh, Caleb, do you want to go or do you want me to go? Well, I'm 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 sliding between two, and I don't keep up with the race as much as you do, Danny. So maybe you can help me figure this okay. out. So, so, oh, sorry, you're if, fine. Go ahead. If we're looking, if we're looking, kind of in the top half of the list, I don't think Nightmare Alley has a chance at anything it's nominated for. Um, it has a I chance just for production design, but a chance is what I would say. Like, yeah. <laughs> Now there's that, but also if we look in the threes, and if if one of the threes is what gets picked, then we'll we'll probably do a tie. I think there's a chance for No Time to Die. I don't think so. I I think uh, No Time to Die is pretty locked and loaded for a, a original song, personally, because they nominated think, the wrong yeah. Encanto song. It's got to get song. Yeah. Well. You do, it nominated the wrong Encanto song for a particular demographic and like age set, I think. But do you really think the the old people at the Oscars care who Bruno is and whether or not we talk about him? I think my parents who saw Encanto with me, who would be that demographic, don't even remember the song that was nominated, but they remember the Bruno song. Well, <laughs> so and, they'll be confused yeah. on what the song that nominated is. And just in general, <laughs> it's typically the chart topper that is nominated. Yeah. All right. I'd also say well, that if you are predicting No Time to Die, that means you think Don't Look Up, Nightmare Alley, and Drive My Car will all win an Oscar. Well, Drive My Car absolutely will. Well, yeah, I'm just including it in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's ultimately while, why why I will land on Nightmare Alley. Because um, I think Don't Look Up, I think Don't Look Up is kind of a dark horse, but I do think, I do think Nightmare Alley has a very tough road to winning anything. All right. So I'll tell you my thought process with this, which is before the noms came out. But there's a lot on here. Yeah. Before like the Lost noms came Otter out. is also a good option. Being the Ricardos is a good option. Well, the so. thing is the three is that it will be a major tie if we get to the three category. I don't think we will. Um, I want to list the possibilities to me until I give my actual choice. Uh, before the noms came out, I honestly thought it would be Belfast. Uh the reason why being I think the only place Belfast can actually competitively win is original screenplay. And I pretty much assumed Licorice Pizza was going to get it until Licorice Pizza got no nominations in acting. Pretty much only got screenplay, director, and picture. Which to me means Licorice Pizza's weak. So now I think Belfast will definitely take screenplay. So we won't have to cover Belfast. I'm pretty sure. Fingers crossed. Uh, then uh, I think there is still potential... Uh, knowing the Academy's history with awarding black actors that Will Smith will lose because of the British contingency for Benedict Cumberbatch and Power of the Dog. And if that happens, I think we will cover King Richard. For now, I still think King Rich- Will Smith is winning for King Richard. But I think there's a very solid possibility we will end up with King Richard. I think we will have a tie. I think we'll cover Don't Look Up and Nightmare Alley. I don't think they'll win anything. I think if there's only going to be one, I think it will actually be Don't Look Up. Because I think Nightmare Alley could take a tech award. I don't see what award Don't Look Up is actually competitive for. It's nominated for picture, original screenplay, editing. And I can't remember the last one because I don't have it open. Uh, Let me check really quick. Original score, which it's not going to win. It's not going to win original score. No way. So I think Don't Look Up is probably the most locked one for us to get. And I think we'll get Nightmare Alley as well. I think we'll be a tie here. Well, this will be interesting since we all picked different ones. Um, out of the three that we picked, I'd rather rewatch 
West Side Story, but I also haven't seen Don't Look Up. So I think uh, Nightmare Alley could be a fun episode to cover. I think Don't Look Up, I didn't really like, but talking about McKay, I feel like will happen either with this film or his next one at some point, because he's kind of one of those prolific uh, Oscar directors these days. Uh, but yeah, uh, we'll see. We will, as of course, uh, live tweet the Oscars, which have terrible ceremonies. <laughs> I mean, excuse me, terrible hosts this year. Um, oh, I don't even know who the hosts are. Um, well, there's one good one. <laughs> it's, well, two. I'd say two, but one of them's outdated. The, there's a host for each hour. The first hour is Amy Schumer, who, when she accepted the gig, said, I guess I should start watching some movies from last year. Uh, then it's uh, Regina Hall. And then... Uh, the last one is Wanda Sykes, who I think will be fine, but like again, feels a little old hat. Not really exciting. Well, Regina Hall's very, Wanda like, Sykes. Oh, cool. it's very obvious that they chose Amy Schumer so that people would talk about it. Yeah, I think it's funny that John Hamm apparently turned it down like a few days before they announced Amy this group, and I would rather John Hamm than Amy Schumer. <laughs> Personally, I, I, I get the appeal of having three women, but John Hamm is a good guy. I hope. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed he doesn't get canceled. Uh, well, I'll be, I'll be ruined for Wanda Sykes. I've I don't not, know that much. Not about nominated Regina for anything. Have you seen Girls Trip? But, no. You should watch Girls Trip. It's good, but fun. And support the girls. Support the girls is good. I actually I need to watch that one. So we all have uh, Regina Hall movies to watch. All right. So now we're gonna move on to the film that we covered this week. Uh, but this film came out. In 1945, which means we are at the 18th Academy Awards. So I'm going to do my little countdown. With the leader of nominations this year was The Bells of St. Mary's with eight nominations. Fun fact, this is the first sequel to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, I don't know what it's a sequel to. I didn't click that, <laughs> but it's a sequel. Uh, but uh, it won one award, which was Best Sound Recording, which I think is, I think it's always funny when like the leading uh, nomination thing just gets like a sound recording. You know what I mean? Like a small techie. No offense to the sound, people. I'm just saying that's the reputation in Hollywood. Uh, with seven nominations was Billy Wilder's the Last, The Lost Weekend, which won four of them, which was Best Director, Best Picture, of course, for Billy Wilder, Best Actor for Ray Milland, and Best Screenplay, which is Adapted Screenplay at this point. With six nominations, uh, Mildred Pierce had won one, which was Actress for Joan Crawford, which famously she was not the ceremony to accept. She had... She claimed she had pneumonia at the time, but she also had the Oscar delivered to her bed. So there's theories out there that she did not attend because she thought she was going to lose. She didn't want to be embarrassed. And then also six nominations, uh, but one win was Spellbound, Alfred Hitchcock's movie. It won Best Score of a Dramatic or Comedic Film, which leaves one other film that had six nominations, no wins. And that is a film, a little known film called A Song to Remember. Directed by Charles Vidor. Sarah, what was A Song to Remember nominated for? Yes. Well, A Song to Remember was nominated for uh, Best Actor for Cornell Wilde, who lost to Ray Milland in The Lost Weekend. Uh, Wilde never got nominated for another award. Uh, Best Cinematography, Color, for Tony Gaudio and Alan M. Davey, and they lost to Leon Shamroy for Leave Her to Heaven. Um, Gaudio was nominated three more times and had previously won for Anthony Adverse, um, and it was a posthumous nomination for Davey, 
uh, who frequently co collaborated with other cinematographers. Um, he was nominated three more times and won one honorary. Best Editing for Charles Nelson, uh, who lost to Robert J. Kern for National Velvet. And Nelson was also nominated for Cat Balu and won for Picnic. Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture for Miklos Rosa and Morris Stoloff. Um, and they lost to Miklos Rosa <laughs> for Spellbound. Uh, Rosa was nominated 13 more times and won three, including that year, of course. And Stolov was nominated 14 more times and won three. Uh, best Sound Recording for John P. Lividary, who lost to Stephen Dunn for The Bells of St. Mary's. Uh, Lividary was nominated 13 more times and won three in-competition awards and three technical achievement awards. And then Best Motion Picture Story for Ernst Marsiska, Mar uh, who lost to Charles G. Booth, The House on 92nd Street. All right. Mr. Caleb, do you have any historic contacts for us? I absolutely do. Um, so Frederick Chopin, this is a movie ostensibly about him, but it takes quite a bit of liberties uh, involving his life. He was Polish. Um, and a uh, kind of a prodigy pianist who would later move on um, uh, to France to kind of become, you know, make his name for himself. And one of what he's most probably well known for is that he was composing for the piano, which was still a developing instrument. Um, and he was kind of at the forefront of innovating for the piano. He, we do see some signs of his real life in this movie he was friend friends with franz Liszt. he did have a relationship with george sand um although i think well we maybe when we start to talk about her role in this movie can get into some of the major differences between that um and he did die fairly young um he only performed um about 30 concerts and most of them were in kind of small venues um and he died at age 39 uh, from tuberculosis. Um, he also was, this movie frames him as very patriotic and he was very proud of his Polish heritage. He was also a big fan of Polish folk music that kind of put him, um, in a bit of a different spot from other more classist composers of the time, but he didn't necessarily have the activist streak that he has in this movie. It's just more of, he was proud of where he came from. Oh, and when he died, he had his sister cut out his heart to take to Poland to bury it oh, because he cool. was afraid of being buried alive. <laughs> cool. Um, all right. I have a little bit of ceremony info before we can talk about the movie because I actually said a bit of it. Uh, this is the first year that every film that was nominated for Best Picture won at least one Oscar. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, this was the return of golden statues. Well, bronze statues that had gold planting on them. Because during the war they were just plaster, so this was this was a first post-war Academy Awards ceremony because it was in March, nineteen forty-six. Um, I also have a fun fact: is that the Lost Weekend, which won Best Picture, is one of only three films in history to win Best Picture and the Palme d'Or. Cons: uh, the other two are Marty, and I think you guys would remember the other one because it was pretty recent, which was Parasite. Uh, those are the only three movies to ever win the Palme d'Or and Best Picture in the same year. Well, at all. Because it's not like these movies got delayed a year. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah. 
Um, all right. So shall we talk about the film? Uh, sure. I think there's definitely an elephant in the room we got to acknowledge first, uh, which is this is a monumental moment for the podcast. This is our first film in Technicolor. Woo! Was it Technicolor or just It color? is Technicolor. It is Technicolor. Uh, which I think one of you texted me. I think it was Sarah. It was like, I'm already more interested in this just because color is shocking me. Or I don't know. One of you guys said something along the lines of that. Don't quote me on it. <laughs> no, it, but- is definitely a, it is definitely a change of pace. We've been doing this for about a year and all of the films have been in black and white. So when this movie opens up and it's in color, it definitely took me took me a second to adjust. Yeah, lucky for us, the storytelling feels about the same. Uh, <laughs> uh, what what do you guys think of it, or do you want me to get my thoughts on it first? Because I liked it. I here's the thing. Maybe it's the color, but it's not just the color. I the acting is the acting bad. Yes. Does the story not feel well paced? Yes. Is the writing bad? <laughs> also, yes. But oh, no. I think this is by far probably the best looking film that we've watched in terms of cinematography, in terms of costume design, in terms of obviously the color, but set design as well. It has a very like stage play quality to it because there are obviously times when you can see that it's just a painted background but it adds to the charm to me like it feels it just looks very inviting and just it feels very comfy to watch i think so do you think if the same cinematographer had worked on marie or madame curie do you think that would have helped that I don't know if anything could have saved. I, well, there are there are very specific problems with well, that movie. I think there's a very, I don't know. To me, I want to kind of agree, but I also do feel like it is mostly the color that's speaking to me, particularly on the cinematography. I don't think any of the shots to me were very impressive. I just liked getting the color. That's just what? me. That's just me. I'm sorry. I'm gonna argue. Okay. <laughs> I okay. There's one scene in particular. When he's playing the piano before before the czarist murderer or whatever comes in and everybody is cl- closed off. Yeah, they, and oh, it, like, that is a good scene. There's so many like really good like dolly shots throughout the entire movie and just really kind of showing the movement of the music through the room. And I think it's so well done and it feels like so ahead of its time for me. There's also that really good scene where it shows him composing and it kind of pans around the piano and then transitions really well into the next scene where it shows his mentor, uh, like reviewing the piece. And obviously that's partially editing, but I also think partially editing, partially sound, but I do think the film or the cinematography plays a part in that. I, I liked this movie too. Um, I think what sold me on this movie is because you're right, sir. There is a lot of things wrong with it. Yes. Um, I like Paul Mooney in it. Uh, he's playing Frederick Chopin's um, mentor teacher who is made up, made up character. Um, and he is really the main character of this movie, but he's just fun. He's not quite hamming up, uh, hamming things up, but he is definitely playing bigger than anyone else in the movie. And between that and some of the things, 
themes of the movie, I found myself having a good time. Um, I didn't like it. Uh, I liked Paul Mooney, as you said, but I feel like it takes a back burner in the second half. Uh, and then it gets too dramatic in the second half. Uh, I really like the opening scene of this movie, which to me promises like a cool mentor and a kid. And then it becomes just what is basically the Wikipedia page of Frederick Chopin. And I know you're going to be like, actually, none of this is accurate. But I don't really care because it's shot and written like it is a Wikipedia page. So there's no actual feeling of structure to this film to me. I thought it was gorgeous. Love the costumes. Love the color. Love the art direction. Fantastic there. But ultimately, I never once got into the story. I was so monumentally bored with it. That I don't like this one. Do you think? Do you think part of that for you is that Frederick Chopin is a block of wood in this movie? Uh, that would be in it. Yeah, because the thing is also is like, okay. So I've pitched, and we're not going to deal with this until a while because we have we're not going to reach a film with this number of nominations for a while. But I think that once we hit ten nominations, we might want to consider, and we haven't decided anything yet. We might want to consider removing a nomination rather than adding one. At the end of our show. Uh, and in this case, if that was not qualified, there's a very obvious nomination to remove because Cornell Wilde is the worst actor in the film. And he is inexplicably the only person nominated for an Oscar. He's not he's, the worst. He's not the he's, worst. He's, he's the worst when he's just playing answer. piano. He's, well, he's not he's even playing, playing the piano. Yeah, that's the thing to me. It's like, like, if this came out today, like, let me, like, like you know, like, well, I'll use Andrew Garfield as an example, but these happen every year. There's someone on the piano doing a movie. Andrew Garfield, this whole campaign is like, yeah, I learned how to play the piano to play Jonathan Larson. Like, <laughs> like. I'm, okay. The difference is, is that Jonathan Larson, talented musician or whatever, not as whatever. impressive as like learning Chopin. Like Chopin is very difficult playing, like some of the most difficult. I know several musical piano. theater majors that I would sick on you. <laughs> They're saying that Jonathan Larson is lesser than Chopin. What are you talking about? Did no, no, Chopin I'm not saying lesser. Rent? I'm, Sorry. <laughs> I'm not saying like lesser in quality. I'm just saying Chopin is technically very difficult. I have tried playing Chopin before. Like, I don't know. And and so I don't really hold it against him that he's not playing the piano, but his expressions while playing is the only time in the movie he ever emotes. He's like Rami Malek in Bohemian Rhapsody. Where he's only good in like one scene, but he's performing. <laughs> and, and in both movies, they're the equivalent of lip syncing. <laughs> I I don't think he's the worst actor because of you mean the, what's her name? I don't think what's she's worse. Name? She's bad. She's bad. Um, I don't think she's worse. <laughs> she, Merle Merle Oberon who plays George Sand. She's not bad necessarily, but she has a monologue at the end that's very off-putting. Like, it's just not good. At least she gets to make decisions, though. Frederick, like, he just, someone comes up to him and they tell him that the sky is green and he'll start walking around and saying that. He is such a spineless character in this movie. (sighs) I didn't like it. But we can still talk about it. I'm not going to be like... The episodes of <laughs> but <laughs> I'm glad you guys liked it. I'm just tired of biopics, which is why I don't want King Richard to qualify for this podcast. <laughs> so the first act of this movie 
is that Paul Mooney is playing this fictionalized uh, teacher of um, Chopin, uh, and Chopin's living in Russia-controlled Poland, um, and he's upset by this. He doesn't like that it's being controlled, and he and his friends are part of the uh, underground movement to kind of overthrow the Russians. He gets called to play for the governor at one point, and then a Russian uh, diplomat who has a very bloody record comes in, and he's like, I'm not going to play for a Russian butcher. And so they have to smuggle him out. Um, this didn't happen, by the way. He was... <laughs> He he learned at he played for the Russian Emperor like he learned at the Warsaw cons, uh, Conservatory. He was a very successful person in his own country. He he didn't necessarily like Russia, but he certainly wasn't opposed to them. Yeah, um... I have to wonder if this movie like very intentionally took a pro Polish. I was going to say this felt propaganda y to me. And against, yeah, it dev- yeah. Well, considering the time, well, <laughs> considering the time period, right? Yeah. Like, it's you know after the war. And Marie Curie was Polish, so like, just two years before, a famous Polish scientist got a biography. See, now I'm looking up because the movie never says it. Now, I didn't look it up. Uh, Chopin, uh, eighteen early 1800s. Okay, cool. Oh, you didn't know when it took place? <laughs> no, I just got, well, honestly, it was one of those things where I was watching, and I was like, you know, this, as far as I know, this happened like 20 years prior to like this movie. You know what I mean? Like, because I could have seen all those, because uh, he always played at rich people's places, you know? So I could have seen all that oh. production design being semi, like 20 years ago, contemporary for rich Europe. That would make sense to me. I think some of, some of George's costumes were, they felt a little like not in the time period. For sure. Not necessarily like 1920s, but maybe not and quite I, 1800s. I think some of the background actors also looked very 40s-ish. Yeah. Like, to me, I would also say, like, the parents' costuming when they're, like, poor. Although the sister has very bright dresses. Uh, and both see she's a... Uh, but I very much got a vibe of, like, oh, this is, like, stylized lower class, 1910s, 1920s, you know? So that's why I was confused. So good to know that uh, Chauvin was uh, in the 18... 18- I got to say, I have a friend who's a big, like, musical theater major that I'm going to have to send this episode to just so he can murder me. Uh, <laughs> well, did you did you recognize any of the music? I mean, I reckon... I, like, I wouldn't be able to name which pieces I recognize, but yeah, and I also know who Chopin and Liszt are. Like, I recognize the names, uh, but... You know, like, I wouldn't be able to name, like, which particular scenes. I was like, ah, this Chopin piece, you know? Uh, but, yeah, I recognized it. It was a... I'd actually say, to me, the best parts of this movie is when the character... And I think both... Maybe you both agree with me, maybe you don't. I think the best parts of the movie is when the characters stop talking, and I just get to listen to the music for a bit, and, like, enjoy, like, the close-ups on the costumes and the sets. Like, those sorts of... I'm like, oh, I was like, oh, Great. The story stopped, and now I can just kind of enjoy like the technical prowess of this film in 1945. You know, I think especially during the finale, the film really does use the power of the music well, and it knows when to put in what songs and stuff. I think it's, and it's also just fun. Like I think there's a sense of like appreciation for this music. Yeah. I wish it maybe had gotten a little bit more into 
how he wrote all this stuff I mean, and maybe why <laughs> it was so innovative. But That particularly yeah. cracks me up, that complaint, because that's like a complaint of every modern musical biopic, you know? <laughs> you know, but modern music biopics, like, are stuck in a structure. This one does not have, this one is not the structure you'd expect, because this one just turns into a like a long debate over who artists make art for. Yeah. Uh, and then I feel like, yeah, I'd agree. And I also would say that it has to do with, of course, the, uh, the political aspects that I'm completely out of touch with because I'm not in 1945, but the ones that I as you said, we can assume are there pretty easily because we know how World War II played out. <laughs> like yeah. it's pretty obvious what it's supposed to be. Um, there's, there's a part where they're at one of the underground meetings and the person who's speaking quotes the Declaration of Independence. Yes, that was pretty so funny, I, I thought. <laughs> well, technically, I mean, technically, they were in France. So their Declaration of Independence would be very similar. Liberté, Equality, whatever Look, the other the French one is. They just Sorry. rip off America. <laughs> the French people can cancel me for me doing the terrible attempt at an accent. Hey, they have to deal with me pronouncing George Sand's name, so... <laughs> George Sand. George Sand. No, no, but they it's, call, it's not they Sand. They said you George said, Sand yeah. in the movie, though, is the thing. Okay. Uh, Can we talk about her for a minute? Yeah, well, I... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She reminded me in her first appearance as Marlene Dietrich in Morocco. She had the little hat. Yeah, because... Yeah, she's doing that gender bender thing. Yeah. Which also, her costumes... Mm, they are there's something in she has yeah she has this velvet overcoat in one scene and i'm like ooh, that's that's the drip well it's really fascinating too because there's one scene where she's wearing something that's like very sparkly and they shot it in a way that just feels very like like they knew what they were doing i will say them constantly putting her in blue eyeshadow was kind of a a choice but I think it probably had to do with, you know, making sure it showed up like on color instead of like a neutral brown so she wouldn't look like sunken eyed or whatever. Mm-hmm. Also, um, if we're going to talk briefly about before we talk about her, because we briefly we briefly talk about the costumes, we're going to talk about an award that doesn't exist yet. We also talk about the professor's sideburns for hairstyling. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> they were very memorable to me. Uh, all right. I just wanted to put that in. I don't have much to say about the cyber. Let's go back to George. <laughs> yeah. So when they get to Paris, um, Friedrich has a hard time uh, because he's upset about things that are going on in Poland. He has a hard time performing. And eventually two of his new friends are able to help him get his first boost in the career. One is Franz Liszt, who um, was a another concert pianist um and the other one is george sand who was a or sand who was a author and a very interesting real life figure the only thing this movie really takes from her real life is that she wore men's clothing and it just kind of turns her into like like a evil temptress i think yeah yes i would agree uh, she only ever really exists to lure him away from the life, the destiny 
that I feel like the movie sets up for him to have, you know? Like, he is the great man. Like, you know, this is a great man narrative. Well, uh, I have to kind of wonder, and I might be looking too into this, but when we look at the time period, you know, obviously you have, you know, pro-Polish vibes going on, but it's like a woman in pants who's, you know, in a profession who's essentially telling a man in a similar pr- profession that he shouldn't be doing it. And to me, like, that really reads as, like, women in the wartime and, you know, coming out of, you know, their jobs and stuff. Um, and I, I might be looking too into this, but, like, she has a very interesting monologue where she talks about how she did all this and she did it better because she's a woman. But the context of it is like a villain monologue. <laughs> like, it does not make her come off. Like, it, she doesn't come off as well. And, like, the words she's saying, you know, might be, you know, they might resonate, you know, with someone like me, a woman. But it makes her sound just, like, very against him in all aspects. No, I would agree. Yeah, I I totally agree with that, especially taking into account what they decided to change about about her. Because a little bit background on her, um, she... Uh, was married, you know, heiress, inherited some wealth, married a man, had some kids. Their relationship did not end well, um, and so they separated. And because she had this wealth, and because she wasn't technically divorced, she was able to kind of navigate um, her place in France uh, with a little bit more um, privilege than a normal divorced woman would have. And so she began wearing men's clothes. She began writing under the pen name George Sand. Um, she began smoking in public, which was something women were not supposed to do. She started having very openly and openly sexual relationships with men of um, various uh, various known, you know, uh, celebrity. Uh, Chopin was not the only uh, celebrity she had a relationship with, but she was a very she was also a very generous figure and someone who was very concerned with like women need to have more freedom and education and stuff like that. And she was very concerned with social causes of the time. And so when you have her in this movie who is basically berating Chopin every time he tries to bring up Poland and being like, no, you don't deserve or no one deserves your talent. It's really odd and it feels like a very pointed criticism, but not at George Sand. It feels like a much more pointed criticism at maybe isolationists uh, during World War II, or maybe this was around the time that Ayn Rand was beginning to uh, write stuff, so maybe it was a criticism about her. It's just it's really weird to completely distort this really interesting historical figure. I'm curious. I'm gonna open her wiki page now and see if she's been depicted in anything else. She, I like, you know, what I mean, like a thing that depicts her with better light. Um, I feel like I she, think there have been several. Yeah, I feel uh, like she has films. has to have had, you know, other, you know, adaptations about her life. She was played by Juliette Minoche. I probably just butchered her name in a French film. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Thanks uh, <laughs> for Godzilla. Uh, Let's see uh, how the reception is on this one. It was played at cons out of competition and at TIFF in 1999. I can't seem to find a 
Actually, oh, directed by a woman, though. So that's pretty cool. Diane Curry's directed this film from 1999. Just from what I'm looking at, it looks like a lot of what she, a lot of movies or TV shows or whatever about her are, they're very closely linked with Chopin. Yeah, and they did, they were in a relationship for 11 years. It was a, or nine or 11 it was a long period of both of their lives, and it did end very badly. Um, not for the reasons in this film, it just they did not get along uh, at the end of their relationship. She resented his ill health, and he started uh, siding with her daughter in arguments. But so, like, there's there's a lot of story there. It's just this is not George Sand. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we can jump to a different part, I want to talk about. Uh, very briefly, because he's the other main historical figure you mentioned. I think Lissist role in this is interesting. I pro- again, I probably just butchered his name, but <laughs> uh, because I feel like he's set up to be like a rival figure, but then they pretty much immediately become friends. <laughs> I don't know. I don't necessarily see it that way. I think from the very beginning, when we first see him, he's playing, you know, Chopin's piece. And, you know, they do this cute little, well, if you play the bass and I play the melody, then we can both shake each other's hands. Like that. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking before he goes, because if I remember right, the professor mentions him and he's like, you're better than him. You know what I mean? Like that type of thing. He uh, may be, but I feel like, like he's pretty much like a friend throughout the entire thing. That's fair. I think if the movie was made today, I don't know, maybe it was just because, you know, Amadeus. I just kind of assumed it was yeah. going to be like that, you know? Yeah. And then it wasn't. I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. I'm okay with that. Well, it's, I, it is interesting that you talk about like the beginning because initially, I don't, and again, I don't know if this happened in real life. I have no idea. But initially the movie kind of sets up that Chopin is not going to be successful because he wasn't a child prodigy. Um, like he arrived in, in France too late. So, uh, you know, he, he's not going to be successful, whatever. Um, and I, I found that to be kind of, I don't know, I thought that was like a very, the movie is written like very frank. It feels very kind of the opposite of Madame Curie where like, like that was so complicated. And I feel like everything in this movie kind of boiled down to like the most like basic, like, I'm not, I don't play for czarist butchers. Like everything is very like to the point. Which I appreciated. There's also, like, I think there's a common theme throughout where um, Chopin is very talented in this, and there is no question about that, but he would not be able to succeed without other people. He won't be able to succeed without his mentor. He won't be able to make his break without um, uh, um, Litz and San kind of jumping in. Um, and then at the end, the whole what's the line i'm gonna pull it up when he's basically being told off by his mentor because he has just become this selfish person who has completely forgotten about the polish flight plight uh his mentor tells him so many ordinary people seem to have been robbed so that one man may have such a gift and like i feel like that kind of sells the whole idea of it's like yes you are very talented but a lot of people had to give up a lot of things for you to be successful I like the scene where they go to the restaurant. That's all I wanted to add. Because you want to watch. Oh, yeah, that's a fun scene. <laughs> but also, <laughs> because to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, Chopin and John Philarson has one more thing in common. <laughs> it's they go to La Bohème. 
Because that's the name of the cafe. (laughs) I just, I feel like while we're talking about a cafe, I might as well bring it up because we're all thinking it. Walter Hauser in this movie. What? (laughs) Oh, I was thinking about that. Yes, but he's there. (laughs) You're correct. (laughs) This actress looks so much like him. Richard Jewell. He's gonna gonna beat us up. And he's there. It's like he's there in so many scenes. Like I'm pretty sure in the last scene when he's dying, he's there. He's gonna, yeah, he is there. He is there. He's gonna beat us up for like you drive my car. He's gonna break your arms. (laughs) Don't my arms. (laughs) Paul Walter Hall, if you want to come on our podcast, (laughs) welcome. Friend of the podcast. Just don't break our arms. Just don't. I think it is really funny because I don't think Caleb knows the story about breaking arms. I have no, I have no idea. This is this is the um, uh, Pottersville all over again. To explain to the listeners who don't know, because I think this is something that the listeners should know too. Um, the LA Times to sway the sway the public opinion yes. of Walter Hauser. So about a month or two ago, I think it was about a month ago, like in January, the Paul, uh, the LA Times posted like something on the part, front of their entertainment page, like what our critics would vote for in the Oscar categories. And it, like, you know, it's full of like Drive My Car. It's full of the actors from Drive My Car. It's also like has like a hero, Parallel Mothers, you know, a bunch of foreign films on there. And someone, of course, quote tweets this and go like, these film critics live in a bubble. And then Paul Walter Hauser, I can't remember where he started. I think he said, I think he said psychotic was the word He's he like, used. These, these critics are psychotic. And then someone was like, have you seen these movies? I don't. I should look up exactly how it escalated. Yeah, it's pretty go, like, like it's pretty iconic. Like what he says. <laughs> All right, I'm googling it. Well, someone talk He's about something mad. else. <laughs> He's like he poured his heart and soul in Cruella, and he didn't get a nomination. Yes, because He's Cruella was wrong. Cruella was the awards movie that he was in. All right, all right. So it includes <laughs> this list included Drive My Car, uh, The Souvenir Part Two, and other stuff. We we have to be fair to Paul Walter Hauser for really right. We need the exact the exact quote. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the first thing he posted was quote tweeting the thing and said these lists are psychotic. And then someone replied to him, "LOL, people need to chill. Your criticism is valid. It doesn't make well. Okay, no. Someone like a lot of people were going after. Was like, how can you be after these against these women directors and these foreign films? And someone like defended him." was like, LOL, people need to chill. Your criticism is valid. It doesn't make you somehow problematic towards women and foreigners. What a ridiculous response. So Paul Walter Hauser quote tweets this. It says, quotes directly, doesn't make you, air quotes, it also doesn't make you somehow problematic towards women or foreigners, end quote. All caps, correct. Then Twitter needs to go shut the f*** up and come say to my face in public and they'll see how fun it is to wipe the ass of a broken arm. But he keeps he keeps going. Yeah, so then someone like replies and he's like, dude, you just said that if you break someone's arm, they confronted you in person all over misunderstanding. Are you not better than that? And he replied, losing my career, which affects me, slash my family, slash my friends, slash my charities, slash my son's life, versus the arm of someone who would needlessly cause my downfall. Dude, you have no idea what the f- you're talking about so Paul House. I gotta say in terms of like Twitter meltdowns for a celebrity this one I think was pretty funny <laughs> like <laughs> it's just so good 
you know, to tie it into the movie, his character in this movie does not seem to like does not seem to like women or foreigners. So he never he never got out of character for my Tanya. He's just stayed in that character the whole time. He never got that character from Richard Jewell. The character from Black Clans. <laughs> This is the Paul Walter Callout podcast. What I think is really funny about it too. Sorry, we will we'll get back to the movie. But there, earlier this year, it had gone viral that he missed the audition because he was shooting the Five Bloods to play Jared Leto's role in House of Gucci. And I remember thinking, like, man, if he had done that role, it might have actually been like a good performance, and maybe he'd be having Oscar talk right now. I just imagined him having Oscar talk right now and tweeting that out. And like just like the, the campaign immediately falling apart. Well, the thing is, so, is like he's he's su- he's in such a perfect spot because it's like nobody cares about him. So he can say what he wants. Well, okay. He, he's, no one will care. He can say what he wants, but is Spike Lee gonna get him back for another movie? <laughs> I don't think Spike Lee probably cares either. It's just really funny to see. Honestly, I I can see a lot of directors in Hollywood, including Spike Lee, being like, oh, he threatened someone to break their arms. He's basically calling him a racist. <laughs> like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Oh my gosh! What were we talking about with this movie? We're I knew like, the Paul Walter Hauser digression was important. <laughs> bo 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 bohemian. This is the life of bo bo bo. Um, I thought you were going to mention how the professor makes jokes about pronouns. <laughs> you were going to say like something with that. When does he do that? He's when oh he, yeah. He makes a weird joke about pronouns, which honestly, I'll be. I don't know if I'm. I felt like I maybe was like a little too bothered by it, considering the obvious context of it. But like he like he's he's, he's very, very confused. confused. Yeah, by by um, Sans gender presentation, it feels very screwball comedy. I think in another context, I think the performance just, in general feels screwball to, comedy. I have yeah. to say, I know you. I know you liked his performance. He just. And I realize, like, in terms of, like, performances, like, he's the only interesting one. But he feels so out of place for me. Like, he feels like he's in a completely different movie. Like, there's a scene where he literally literally faints in one scene. Like, it's so over the top. Listen, listen. You're not wrong. But. (laughs) He's just. Oh, my word. He's using his entire body. Everyone else is so stiff in this movie, but he's like kind of crouching over and like walking around and like touching everything on set at once. Like not follow COVID protocols. Yes, he Sorry. is not. He's and he's not masked and he's not vaxxed. Um, <laughs> Paul Mooney, cancel Paul Mooney in twenty twenty two. And Paul Walter House, and they can both go to jail together. If we could, like, we, we could Mooney. talk about we could talk about Paul Mooney because he was a very interesting actor. Like he. He wasn't in a lot of films. He was only in 22 films, but he was acclaimed on screen and stage. Uh, he just, he was, he was, a you know, the prize of Warner Brothers and he got to choose all of his parts. Um, you know, most famously, he played Louis Pasteur, uh, which I'm sure is a very fascinating film. Um, and then he played, he, he originated the role of Tony in the original Scarface. Oh, I thought you could say West Side Story. I got really excited. No. Like Tony started um, as like a man in his fifties. Because <laughs> sorry, go on. In one of his stage roles at the age of twelve, he played an eighty-year-old man. 
in one of his films <laughs> called Seven Faces. He played seven different characters. So he, oh, he I had need to a watch very a very interesting career. Like he he was considered, and actually he was considered like it's interesting that you mentioned like his whole body because he was considered the quote new Lon Chaney, um, just because he was so transformative in all of his roles. Yeah, I mean, I could totally like see that from this role. Honestly, I feel like it's a weird, fun character role. I think it's pretty cool. He got top billing too. Um, I think that it's. I I do think it's very weird that they didn't think to like campaign him at all. Maybe. Well, I think it could be something where kind of what Caleb said last time with uh, Edward G. Robinson, I believe was his name, uh, where I feel like structurally he feels like he's a supporting actor, but also he does pretty much lead the first. 40-ish minutes of the movie. And it, and it might have first been, build. It might have been a, a situation also similar to that where, I mean, maybe the vote was just split or something. Yeah. But he was definitely, like, the star in terms of, like, who they wanted to build, for sure. Yeah. I do want to say one thing about the ending, which is, uh, you know, he goes off to play concerts and then he dies, basically. But you know what the best part of it was? Was that Technicolor blood splatter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really nice Technicolor. So the only thing I had to say about the ending was I like the blood. I like that whole montage. The only downside is that it's cutting back to things we've seen in the movie, some of which happened like a scene ago. Yeah, that's And fair. like some of them were scenes like, presumably it's him thinking about it, but like one of them was a scene that he wasn't even in. So I don't know how he would have known about it. <laughs> He's clairvoyant. I always think it's funny when movies do stuff like that. Or, like, I don't know. There's other things, too, when, like, people dream in third person and something where they're... Okay, I know what I'm thinking of. I watched the UR Arthur episode, and the episode is in first person, but the the memory is in third person. And I was like, that's relatable. I remember things in third person sometimes. Anyway. Uh, well, if we're done talking about the movie, I do have one last thing I want to say before we go on to our words, which is a very important thing. Just that the Wikipedia article, as we always do, well, two things on it. One, the article's plot summary is way too detailed since December 2019. So if you want to watch this whole movie, lucky you, the entire Wikipedia description pretty much sums up everything. Weirdly, it's too detailed, but it also doesn't have every scene. Yeah. So it's not detailed enough. (laughs) But more importantly to me, I just want to read the legacy section, which I think is an interesting fact. Uh... Liberace's trademark candelabra, electric candelabra, was inspired by one, a prop in this film. Oh, yeah. That's um, the scene where he's writing and it transitions, like I was talking about before. Yeah. I noticed that and I was like, oh, that's very behind the candelabra. It is, because it literally is. Um, all right. So we're going to play our game. Sarah, what was this nominated for? Yes, a song to remember. Is nominated for Best Actor for Cornell Wilde, Best <laughs> Cinematography Color, Best Editing, Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, Best Sound Recording, which we didn't talk about at all, and Best Motion Picture Story. Now, I gotta say, before I pick mine, I think it's totally ridiculous, and I think it would be disqualified today to nominate this for Best Score. <laughs> because the best tracks in it are the archive tracks. Well, there was a few where 
they used like the song that he was playing and they kind of like you know extrapolated it to make it like a like a you know a full score which yeah like it was good but it all it does seem a little bit cheating a bit yeah um i'm picking even though i railed against it briefly the cinematography uh because i because i think it was I, I said that i don't think it's the best we've had or like even top of what we've had but i do think it's one of the best assets of this movie i think it uses technicolor really well uh and as you did mention there are some really nice camera movements in here too so cinematography for me i agree i will uh differ uh not because they're the like a third emotion <laughs> No, not because the cinematography is bad, but because the sound mixing is pretty good, um, especially compared to some of the movies we've had in the past where when music comes in, it's very distracting. I feel like it was mixed in very well here. You mean recording? Because there's no sound mixing category yet. Yeah, whatever the sound one is, okay. that isn't original score. I was surprised now you picked the editing because you guys both seem like the editing way more than me, but... All right. There are good individual moments with the editing. I don't think it's edited well overall. Okay. Adonam. Uh Paul Mooney um, for supporting. I don't know how he didn't get a nomination. Um, and personally, I would give him lead over the person who played Chopin because Chopin's missing for like large chunks of this movie. But yeah, I, I really liked Paul Mooney's performance. And before the themes came in and won me over, his performance was carrying the movie. Uh, well, I will say uh, art direction. Easily. Uh, yeah, here's the thing. I was thinking maybe like costume design or the hairstyle, like, as I mentioned briefly. But ultimately, I'm going to go with art direction because I both think it is the most impressive quality of the film. And it's bizarre because that category actually existed at this time that I didn't get in. With the other two, I could be like, yeah, I could put that if the category existed. But in this case, I legitimately don't know how this messed is by far to me the best asset of the film. Uh, so art direction for me as well. Well, guys, before I say what happened next week, we have, you know what next week would have been? It's a Wonderful Life. Exactly. We've caught back up. So if you remember, It's a Wonderful Life got, um, how many nominations? Let me open that up again. I think six. Six, I think. I think seven, but I'm unsure. Maybe it's six. I think all of them. It got all of the nominations, and it won, it won every single them. one. I think it's it very interesting, by the way. Yes, very interesting, by the way, that this movie had such horrible acting, and then the next year was it's a wonderful life. Um. So this movie, uh, so it's a wonderful life. Had six nominations and no wins, but it did win a technical award. So we'll have to go down to films that had four nominations and no wins. However, our first one of the films that would qualify for that also won a non-competitive award because uh, Laurence Olivier won a special achievement Oscar for his work on this film, which is, drumroll, Henry V. Uh, have I ever seen the Brown on version? I'm no. just curious. Is that okay. the one with Ian McKellen? No. I don't believe so. it's the one of Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, he plays. Yeah, I've only seen Hamlet, and I am going to assume that they're very similar. Well, Henry the Fifth is much shorter. If you want to watch a Branagh, uh, I actually watched it last year, um, so I'll be going in with that comparison knowledge pretty well because these are both considered to be pretty much the 
Shakespeare, like the, the film version of this play for different reasons. Uh, and I'm excited then, to watch this one for what I've heard about it. Kenneth Branagh played Laurence Olivier in My Week with Marilyn. Yeah, that's huh. true. Yeah, fun little connection. So we should have, I guess I should have said my Belfast talk to next week, next time. But say I love you. All right. I'm Danny Vincent. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Blank Mints. You can also listen to my other podcast, Wise with Ty and Dan, where we talk about Marvel movies, or in this case, recently Marvel TV shows that premiered like five years ago. Uh, but we're also going to be starting to prep for Doctor Strange and Moon Knight. So if you like all that stuff, come listen to it. Sarah's going to guest pretty soon on it to talk about not Marvel stuff, <laughs> to talk about Sam Raimi, yeah. which is going like to be pretty every episode. Fun. Oh, no, I, I was on a Marvel-related episode. Never mind. Which one? Oh, Spider-Man 2, of course. Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Not MCU. Definitely not MCU. But you're coming back for more Sam Raimi. So that'll be pretty exciting. I am Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. I would like to retract me saying that Ian McKellen was in Henry V. He was in Richard III. (laughs) Better names, Shakespeare. Um, And you can check out my other podcasts, All New 52, Star Wars Therapy, and Hot Trash Unlimited. Special thanks to our editor, Joe, who's also on All New 52 with me. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Um, and I'm Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Letterboxd, just my name, Sarah Knopf. I also, I feel like every, I, this is going to be a running bit where I come up with new stuff and then I drop it like a few weeks later. <laughs> but I'm going to commit. I have a new blog where I talk about everything that I watch, not just movies. So far, I've only talked about Love is Blind, but there should be an X-Files season one post coming soon. And please um, write an article about Arthur. <laughs> I'm begging. I, I, want probably, your... I will probably write about Arthur, but that is at uh, sarahswatchrecap.wordpress.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at SGK29ESSGEEKAY29. Um, you can find us, The Snuff Club, on Facebook, just The Snuff Club. Uh, Twitter, Pod, where we will be live tweeting <laughs> the Oscars, um, and Instagram, Podcast. All right. Well, we will see you guys in a couple of weeks for a little bit of Shakespeare, where I guess we could talk about both Belfast and Tragedy Macbeth. This is a dagger I see before me. <laughs> is that a dagger? <laughs> we'll catch you with the bard then.